Can science replace religion? Our guest today has extensively pondered this issue. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothills Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Tanner Addis. Working in diverse areas, from atmospheric modeling with collaborators at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, to the philosophy of machine intelligence, Dr. Edis is currently Associate Professor of Physics at Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. Fascinated by the plethora of supernatural and fringe science beliefs around him, and concerned about the rise of Islamist politics back in Turkey, Dr. Edis first got involved with skeptical inquiry into religious and paranormal claims during his graduate studies. He has since written and spoken extensively on such subjects, particularly on the topic of anti-evolutionary thought. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Edis. Oh, thanks for having me on. Let's jump right into the meat of this interview. Do you think science can replace religion? Well, not really. I mean, can you see scientists operating soup kitchens? I mean, (laughs) for that matter, can you see scientists rallying people around to wipe out the infidel? I mean, really, socially speaking, science and religion are just too different for any one of them to replace the other. And, in fact, I think this needs a little bit more emphasis in writing about the subject. Sure, whenever, say, religion makes claims about, say, the nature of the universe, nature of reality, and so forth, we get into a realm where science may have something to say about this as well. But much of religion is really not concerned with these sort of things at all. So there's really no reason for conflict or anything, really. Are scientific advances responsible for the secularization of some parts of the world? Well, only partially, I would say, and indirectly at that. If you're talking about, say, secularized parts of the world, you probably have to start thinking of Western Europe. Organized religion has become very weak in Western Europe. For example, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference in Amsterdam, and they held this conference in a very lovely conference center, which turned out to be the main Lutheran church, a historically very important Lutheran church in the middle of Amsterdam. And because it couldn't support a religious congregation anymore, they had to change it into a conference center. And all over Europe, there are very nice churches and things like that. They're converted not just into conference centers, but even things like carpet warehouses. So clearly, in Western Europe, organized religion as we understand it is in a bit of a state of decline. It really isn't because everyone has turned into some kind of rationalist who depends on science to shape their view of the world. It's not because people have been influenced by, say, Richard Dawkins. The reasons are different, and there are sociologists of religion who study this sort of thing, and their answers are kind of interesting. It seems that if you want to find causes, you look at things like, well, technology. You look at, say, the bureaucratic rationalization of governments and economies, and also very much the cultural relativism, the cultural relativism that really takes hold when people with widely differing backgrounds have to work together. And all this really has a lot more to do with organized religion becoming less plausible to the daily lives of a lot of people. And sure, I mean, science has something to do with all of those aspects of modern life, but the influence, as I said, is somewhat indirect. None of us in Europe, the United States, we don't live in a scientific culture by any means. So when you do have secularization, when it happens, I don't think it's something that science can take much credit or blame for. Yet here we have in this country, in the United States, I think we're still world leaders in science, but we're also, I think most would consider us to be a very religious country. Why is it different here than, say, Western Europe? Well, actually, that's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting question, actually, because nobody fully knows the answer. This is something that people who study religion have been asking themselves for decades now. 
and their answer is very widely. A lot of it has to do to a certain degree with, well, you have to speculate. Some people think that it may have to do with the United States being an immigrant society. Some people suggest that it really is linked to the fact that many social characteristics of the United States are actually more similar to the more religious third world rather than to Europe. And the examples they give is things like, to say, the lack of security in many of our lives, even if we're relatively wealthy. And if you go far enough, you'll even run to some people who suggest that genetics may have something to do with it, mm. because it's the more religious segments of the population that tend to immigrate to the United States in the first place. So if religiosity has a lot to do with genetics, then that's going to carry over today as well. Mind you, I think the genetic explanation is a bit far-fetched. But, I mean, in any case, yeah, we're very much an anomaly here as far as the technologically advanced world is concerned. I mean, it's very impressive how much of the social life in the United States revolves around churches. For example, when I was a postdoc in Louisiana about 10 years ago, I found that I had very little that I could do on weekends as far as social life was concerned, because the major activities were either centered on the churches or on gambling and bars. And <laughs> none of these had any attraction to me, so I guess I found I had a lot of time to do work. Yeah, I guess that's another interesting question, right? How is this scientific culture that we have here and this religious culture also probably the most gambling culture in the world? Also, it seems to be so regional in this country, certainly if we look at election results as one oh, yeah. of the indicators that, you know, from state to state is very different. If I were, say, doing my postdoc in California rather than Louisiana, the situation would have been very different. Mm -hmm. But even there, too, depending on where you are in California, your local culture might not be, say, heavily Southern Baptist and Catholic, it might be more New Agey instead, but that in itself is mainly a different variety of supernatural belief rather than something much more secular. Now, speaking of the New Agey thing, aren't there many things that we can't explain, such as miraculous healings or psychic powers, that do suggest some sort of a spiritual reality? Well, I mean, this type of belief is pretty popular among people. I find it dubious, and generally the reaction of the scientific community is to find these claims disreputable, that there isn't really any good evidence for it. But it's definitely an important part of people's religious beliefs these days. In fact, I actually teach a course, a sort of an interdisciplinary seminar course at my university. I call it Weird Science, and it's all about these paranormal claims and other claims at the fringes of science. Uh, my main focus in the course is three, if you want, sort of big-time challenges to mainstream science, and these are creationism, parapsychology, and UFO beliefs. And it's kind of interesting, I've been able to observe how these tie into students, say, religious backgrounds over the years. And it seems that when it comes to, say, something like UFOs, a lot of students are very intrigued with it. They sort of even like the idea that there is something out there that science is not able to handle. But their commitment to it is actually fairly weak. They discuss it among themselves for a couple of weeks, look at the evidence pro and con, and generally they tend not to take the UFOs business that seriously. It's not religiously very significant to them. Parapsychology? Maybe they're a little bit more committed to that, those that believe. But again, the whole thing about psychic powers or miraculous healings and things like that, it tends not to be hugely important to them. So again, they discuss it among themselves, they argue, they look at the evidence pro and con, and very often they can move away from any commitment they might have had to this type of belief. But when you come to looking at the issue of creation and evolution, 
This, curiously enough, is the area where my students show practically no movement whatsoever. They come into the course as a creationist. We discuss it for a couple of weeks, the evidence pro and con. They almost certainly will walk out as a creationist if they entered. And again, if their commitments are towards trusting the scientific community, trusting evolution, that's not going to change at all as well. There's a lot of stuff out there that might be unexplained to some degree or another, but even the religious significance of this is not always very clear. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Tanner Addis. We are discussing his book, Science and Non-Belief. Don't we run the risk of overstepping the boundaries of science? So, for example, isn't the question of what caused the Big Bang more a question for metaphysics than for physics? Well, there's sort of two questions over there. One would be about the boundaries of science, and the other, I guess, about specifically the Big Bang. When it comes to the Big Bang, you presumably don't want me to start on a physics lecture over here. <laughs> Please. <laughs> uh, but actually, as it turns out, today, when we're doing physical cosmology, we're at the point where we can at least ask interesting questions about explaining the Big Bang. We can't quite answer them yet because we haven't learned how to combine quantum mechanics and gravity quite yet. But certainly this is an area where maybe a generation of physics ago we might have said, hey, we're not going to go there. These days we can. So things change. And actually that's an interesting illustration, you might say, of the notion of the boundaries of science actually being fairly fuzzy. Historically, scientists have very often charged into areas where, say, philosophers might want to reserve to themselves. And generally, scientists don't often take it very seriously. We go in, we barge in, sometimes we're a bull in a china shop, but sometimes we get somewhere. So I don't think it's quite that easy to lay down the law saying, hey, this side is for you scientists, but this side is for other people, don't touch it. You've said that science and non-belief have a one-sided relationship. What do you mean by that? Well, that's looking at science and non-belief as, if you like, as institutions, as communities. Now, the scientific community does not generally like to be associated with non-belief. And very often the reason is, say, the funding that comes our way Mm -hmm. is public money. And we don't want to be in a situation where we're going out and saying, hey, give us your tax dollars, even though we're doing things that, for a religious population, a lot of people are going to dislike. Even when we tread into religiously dangerous waters, the scientific community tends to downplay any sort of connection with non-belief. Even though, say, non-believers might be a useful constituency sometimes in situations where you want to defend evolution education in schools. On the other hand, if you look at, say, groups of people that are non-believers that go under the heading of, say, organized groups of secular humanists or atheists or brights or whatever name they want to call themselves, invariably they tend to be very positive towards science. In fact, there's a bit of sometimes hero worship going on about science as a sort of symbol of human achievement and ability to understand the world and better our lives and so forth. So in that sense, it's very one-sided. Non-believers tend to be very warm towards science, they embrace science, but scientists really don't return a favor, and for a very good reason, I think. Well, certainly, and then, you know, we can broaden this discussion to some of the things going on in politics and science right now, like stem cell research, where people seem to get the science confused with religion there. True, but when you come to something like stem cell research, again, this is an area where, say, somebody can be very much the scientific expert on stem cells and the medical research involves and the prospects of, say, developing wonderful new cures for this. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you know the science very well, you're also an expert on the politics and the ethics of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And especially in a fairly devout society like the United States and a democratic society, it does make a certain amount of sense for religious people to have a seat at the discussion as much as a scientist. I don't like the idea of necessarily scientists charging ahead and saying, hey, we're the experts, we know everything, fund us and just sort of sit back and relax. That's not going to work that way. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us today. You're welcome. We've been discussing the book Science and Non-Belief with its author, Dr. Tanner Edis. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and your comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.